welcome back to another thrilling episode of Adventuring Academy. I'm your humble dog, Master Bradley Mulligan. This is the podcast where we talk about all things tabletop and how to run amazing games at your table for your friends. Our guest today, oh my goodness, are we so delighted to have this luminary, this visionary, this genius. You know him as the dungeon master of Join the Party, the head of creative at Multitude Productions. He is the creator and host of the podcast Next Stop, an audio 90s style sitcom. And what's your favorite Pokemon? And then I say something nice about you, a podcast about finding excuses to give your friends compliments. He is also the co-author of No Capes, a D&D ready skinning and superhero guide, and Clear Eyes slash Full Heart, a GMless TTRPG about high school football and drama, my friend and yours, Mr. Eric Silver! <sighs> Sorry, I'm sorry. Sorry. Oh, I didn't have my right. This is a, that was so delightful. I loved that so much. That was so good. Thank you so much. Now I'm gonna be a little nicer when I come at you about being mean to Greenpoint. <laughs> mean to Greenpoint. A, a lovely and delightful neighborhood. Again, I, it's you. Nobody gets to live in every single neighborhood in New York City. Greenpoint, one of the neighborhoods I have actually lived in. I have no ill will in my heart towards your beautiful and wonderful neighborhood of Greenpoint and whatever could I have done? Uh, I was just so ready in, uh, so after Unsleeping City one, I was just like, all right, everyone, the things they know about Greenpoint, crime, Lugach, that's it. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, I guess that's how people know Greenpoint. Those, that's where all the bakeries are. And then like, and then Unsleeping City 2 comes in. I'm like, great, Greenpoint representation. There's families. And then I'm like, oh, still more crime. <laughs> still lying to people on the Upper East Side and going back to Greenpoint. Noted LGBT ally, Dr. Lugash Premitsky, one of the most golden-hearted and heroic characters. Also, uh, I'm not sure that uh, criminality uh, in a nation with laws as uh, corrupt uh, and uh, ill-fated as the United States of America, some would wear that with a badge of honor. But I take your point. I, I could... I love it. I love it. It's actually good because now people won't go to the bakeries I like because they're like, oh no, Lugash is there. I don't want to go. He'll blow my tits off. I don't want to go there. <laughs> Get a fucking croissant. Like, I don't want to go to Greenpoint. Uh, the, truly, there was a, the, the, one of my, the, right around the corner from where I lived in Greenpoint, I think it's called The Standard. They did, it was a coffee shop that did the best blueberry muffin I've ever had. And they also were the first place, this is many years ago at this point, that had those tip jars that use pop culture to elicit tips out of you, where it's like Batman versus Superman, who wins? And there's two little tip jar cups and you're voting with your dollar. And I was like, this is wild the degree to which this is working like swarm like swarming huge amounts of tips uh for the baristas at this place by like invoking pop culture tribalism i was like this is a very shrewd this is shrewd this is very very smart um point baby taking money however we can the podcast studio that's how we do it criminals and none more than the podcasters um uh <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and by the way, for people that don't know, Greenpoint also the the hub of Kickstarter headquarters, which is the same block as Multitude, correct? That's right. We're like around the corner. Kickstarter has like a really beautiful building and is like 
is very large because they're a very large tech company. And then like we have a we're in the old. So these are all old pencil factories. So like we have like a room that's in a pencil factory and we like retrofitted it to put this podcast studio in there. And that's where multitude offices are. But I just like I love the idea that like someone in like the 1800s was like making an eraser and I'm also like, oh, I wish I could make this edit work. <laughs> and like it's the same amount of work, obviously. Uh, well, it's a very like that part of Greenpoint is so beautiful, and like like a lot of that waterfront in Brooklyn, where you're talking about like old factories, there's old industrial stuff that's there. Um, the Kickstarter building, which one of the most beautiful, there is a library there with like these high windows and this wild banquet table that I've want that I got to play D and D at a couple times with. Uh, mutual friend Taylor Moore, who's the uh, head of Fortunate Horse, which produces uh, Rude Tales of Magic, which is, you know, we've had Branson Reese on the show. The community is she very small people. There's a bunch of cool people working in it. But uh, that building is uh, extraordinary. And uh, it's uh, Greenpoint is, of course, a lush, uh, beautiful, vibrant neighborhood uh, with uh, uh, also some notable rooftop bars and a very, a very good club uh, dancing scene. My old UCB friends, Josh Sharp and Ryan Haney, used to go out dancing in Greenpoint almost every night of the week. I love that. That's great. Listen, I'm just saying Greenpoint is great. Also, you can come to the Multitude Studio and you can see all my dice. I'll show you all, all the dice that I have. I have I have my little friend Chad here, <gasps> my little my little Funko Pop who I love who watches me DM. So uh, listen, I'll show you cool things at the Multitude office, but only once it's safe. Only then can you come unannounced to my office. Uh, incredible. Uh, speaking of your office, let's talk a little bit about your work. Uh, let's talk about join the party. And uh, the, the thing we share most uh, in common, I think, as creators, as Dungeon Masters, which is taking this game of high fantasy and going, how do we put this in New York State? And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, uh, but talk to me a little bit about like your history with tabletop role playing and where where were the first moments in your kind of biography of tabletop where you started to like experiment with the form and go, actually, I'm going to do whatever I want with this. Yeah, I think it's actually kind of funny. I came to tabletop role playing games relatively late. I only found them like a few years ago. Once fifth edition was up and running, I feel like the way that I found it was the adventure zone. Um, retroactively, I'm like high-fiving Griffin. Like, imagine I'm reaching through time and high-fiving Griffin because of that. Um, yeah, so I, I was introduced to D&D &D with the Adventure Zone, and then I'm just like, I really want to play some D&D. &D. And this is only when they were on balance. This was like a bunch of years ago. Yeah. And um, I was like, oh, I would really love to do this. I mean, I'm a big nerd. I like storytelling. Like, I was a camp counselor for so many years. And Shout like, out camp. Shout out camp. L L mine was Jewish summer camp, so it might be a little different than yours. Which mine was, was hippie LARPing. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So mine was explicitly people should make out, and yours would, like, only make out if it makes sense for the story. <laughs> Listen, people I did make out in character, and I'll leave it at that. Um, <laughs> and we also made out in character, which means the expectations of Jewish people for the uh, people to, to continue, and you have to meet at summer camp. <laughs> um, but you know, like all of the traditions of a, of a summer camp counselor, I was, I went to summer camp as a camper for like 12 years. And then I was a counselor for four and then head staff for one of those. And I was always for like the 15 and 16 year olds, which are the oldest. And that's where like the, 
uh, I don't want to say cultish, but like, you know, if you went to summer camp, but like, you know, all the ritualistic stuff that happens around there. And there was something that was called um, that we you would do on Friday nights called There Once Was a Wizard, which is like you would tell this story because everyone was assembled because there's a lot of celebration because it's Shabbat and we're all going to like sing and dance after we ate all of this chicken and, and brownies and it was delicious. And then you do all this and there's this story and you would tell this story about this wizard that went all around that like that went to China, that went to Russia, that went to Brooklyn once. And I always thought that was funny because this was in Toronto because my dad used to go there. He was like, he's from Erie, Pennsylvania, which I always call just like right in between Pittsburgh and Cleveland, which means it's nowhere. And, and so it's like, he would go up to the Canadian one. So I'm just like, ah, you're talking about Brooklyn. I love that. And then of course there's a big screaming moment. This is like, and then he came to Camp Rama to get, come and get some Ruach, which is like the energy you have. And it's just like 14, 15, 16 year olds screaming at the top of their lungs around you. And like, my job was to do that story for two summers in a row. And I was just like, great honor, but I was also doing it. And I loved having, making like people scream around me for, you know, cause like, I don't know if you have this feeling, but like, do you also love attention? No, I've made choices in my life to avoid attention wherever possible, which is why I'm on the hundredth episode of the, you know, vodcast about the actual play show uh, (laughs) with the topic series. No, it's like you're saying, it's a very, it's a, it's a bizarre, uh, uh, yeah, there, there is no way to do this kind of work without at the very least having comfort with, um, with attention. And uh, I mean, you, I'm sure you know this as well because you work in podcasting, which has, you know, like to pol- the, the polishing and the editing. When I, f- like, I, I am one of the, the executive producers of Dimension 20. I watch the edits of the show. I remember having nausea around like watching myself talk yeah. in season one. Baby, that's gone now. I like, like my, like, seeing my face jabbering on like that i just killed those embarrassment nerves dead after what six seven seasons of the show now just watching my own face talk i'm like oh there's that again like it just it it yeah being the center of attention is something that you just find ways of making yourself accept uh uh, when you are interested in performance and storytelling right and it's like you do it because you I, it's, you know, it's very funny. Is it just like being a dungeon master? I was also um, a high school English teacher for a while. Like I got certified and everything. I did it for a year. So like being in front of people because that's your job and it's best for everyone is like such a thing I understand. Because like, you know, your teacher is supposed to be the person who's teaching you things, but they're the ones who talk the most in a classroom, right? Which is simply how I feel to dungeon mastering, which I felt about being a camp counselor in the same way, is like, I'll take this position because I like to talk and I think I talk pretty okay. So like, I'll take this responsibility of being in front of you and allowing other people to judge you, uh, to judge me when I'm like, yeah, I'll do, I'll do it. it. It feels like a job in the way that the dungeon master's job is to do this while players do this. I found like so many parallels between dungeon mastering and like my camp counselor and teaching careers. So, if- I man is that refreshing to hear. I realized recently that every single job I've ever had mm-hmm. has involved I, I don't know if like if if parasocial relationship is the right term for all these, but I kind of think it works of like actual play dungeon master, 
like improviser performer. And before that, even before I was doing creative stuff, I was a bartender and yeah. a camp counselor, yeah. which even though those are very different industries, it still is a weird thing where it's like, I am getting paid to have a weird kind of relationship with people. When you're a bartender, a bartender might be the worst offender in terms of parasocial relationship weirdness right. of like, hey, I'm your friend. And also I may kick you out of here later. <laughs> like, right. that's, uh, but yeah, I know exactly what you mean. There's, there's that weird navigating of like, um, in all of those, camp counselor, bartender, dungeon master, there is this element of, I am going to have a relationship with a group of people yeah. in, in which I think as a person, you wanna remove hierarchy from that as much as possible. Obviously, camp counselor, there's just hierarchy inherent in that you're an adult, you're children. And then with bartender, there's a, there's a hierarchy in that you're a customer, but I, I am like a representative of the business and its interests here. But you're trying to remove that hierarchy where and when you can, but there's still the idea of the singular and the many. Like I'm doing a job that's for one person to do and I'm relating to a group of people that share a common denominator. You're the kids at the camp, you're the patrons at the bar. I think maybe maybe an easier way, I like what you just said about uh, hegemony. You are, um, this is giving a speech at a wedding because mm -hmm. you are just a guest. Maybe you're the, the, the maid of honor, maybe you're the best man, but the, you are really all the same and the only person, you are doing this for the bride and groom. And you're like, I want you to have a special day. I'm going to do the thing I'm good at, which is making a speech, talking in front of people, making you laugh, making everybody laugh. And I'm going to do it. I find that it's like such a responsibility that like mm -hmm. I'm going to crush it for you on your special day, which is similarly how I feel about dungeon mastering is like I'm going to crush it for you on your special day because you put two hours aside and we need to go into our hot studios and record. The the relationship, it's so, yeah, talking about hegemony and hierarchy and all that stuff, there is a weird, like, the culture of Dungeons and Dragons is such a weird thing to talk about because I feel like the idea of the game having a culture is something that has gotten truer as uh, the internet and media and other things. Like, for example, my exposure to, like, I remember playing D&D as a kid and watching the only media reference to D&D players be like comic book guy on The Simpsons. Yeah. And having that dissonance of like, well, that's nothing like what me, me and my friends are little hippie kid storytellers. We're not, that doesn't resonate with me at all. But knowing that that was the cult, like the war gamer kind of culture the, and, the, and the gatekeeping experiences that lots of people had at their local gaming stores of like being people outside of that very specific mold trying to get into the game. But there is an element as the game has progressed of that, like the culture or hegemony around it changing where suddenly it's like, oh, who, like, who does this game belong to? Who is allowed to play it? Um, and I think that that like, there are some hoary, crusty, old, bad things from the before days of like the dungeon master and like the adversarial kind of like, it, which is so funny to me because the idea of the dungeon master being an authoritative position is so fundamentally bananas. There's nothing stopping you from dropping 
a hundred dragons on the adventuring party. If this relationship were adversarial, you could just win. Like it's would kill you because you said something rude to my NPC. You say, well, I don't actually need your authority to a guard. And the guard says, well, I have a gun. And then he shoots you in the face and you're dead. Like that's the thing is, is when I hear the horror stories of the dun of the the adversarial dungeon master, part of the, you have the, the initial reaction, which is like, oh, how rude, how mean, how cruel, how unnecessary. And then you go like, how? And then the other, there's another part of me that goes like, if you were adversarial, how did the game even start? Like, why didn't you just kill them right away? Like, in other words, the structure of this is so clearly a role of service. Like, the way I feel running a game of Dungeons and Dragons is the exact same way I feel preparing dinner for a group of friends. Yes. It's like, yeah, I did some work ahead of time. There might be a little, like, round of applause for me as the dinner is served. But fundamentally, the point is I did work because I love my friends and I wanted everyone to have a good time. And similarly to me dungeon mastering, during the meal, I'll make eye contact with all of them and being like, are you enjoying this? Did you <laughs> How do you, the peas, I spent a lot, here's the secret about the peas is that I found them. I went to a market a few, a few miles away and that's where I got them. <laughs> <laughs> You like it? Do you like it? Do you like this? Tell me. Tell me. That you can say it with your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I notice what you're not eating. Yeah. And and again, like a lot of dinners that I have made, the thing I spent the most time on gets smashed on the floor and whatever the side dish was becomes the focus of the meal uh, ad infinitum. Um, and the usually... The name of this is it's potatoes? <laughs> Gotta make more of these, man. Yeah. These are so good. We love these and we love it because we can tell it wasn't the main thing you worked on. Um, what uh, is this ketchup? So good, Brandon. Oh my God. Thank you. <laughs> oh my uh, God. Um, I, I would love to say something just about what you just said about the crusty, the crusty hegemony in this because yeah. this is something that I've been pushing on quite a lot. So like really short version of the other thing is that like I found it. I wanted to make a D&D podcast. That was always what it came down to. I was podcast adjacent. Join the party was, was my first one. I got like a group of people together, which then became Multitude, which is our uh, podcast collective and production studio, which now is like my full time job. And we have. I'm like counting the, the pictures of the of the podcast over there. We have like 11 shows. A bunch of them are partners. Like we're, we're a part of a collective. Everyone owns their IP and it's so much fun. And all everything I learned was making this D&D podcast. So, but the D&D the podcast is like, you look at the things that are done, that are as fantasy and the fantasy genre. And then you're like, oh, wait, this isn't me at all. I find like, Hey, Brennan, this is going to be wild to uh, maybe some of you who've lived in the, the state of New York. I am a Jewish person. I'm <laughs> Jewish. This is what it looks like. And, like, I so much lately after being in, encompassed in D&D stuff is like, oh, man, you guys, are you guys just mean Christianity, don't you? Like, mm -hmm. this is all just filled in Christianity in so many ways. And, like, it really irked me. It re it's really been irking me. And especially, like, all right, well, let's try to remove the fantasy thing from there. And now in campaign two of joining the party, we're doing a modern like magic realism, like superhero sort of thing where yeah. a small town in upstate New York then becomes a metropolis, the size of Portland because of discovering a new element, a uh, diaphragm, which makes Delta rate Delta 
uh, radiation, which is one better than gamma radiation. Suck at Incredible Hulk. Uh, <laughs> and, and it turned people, it gave people superpowers in that way. And like by ripping it off, I'm like, okay, let's live in this world and then we can tackle these things, which is similar to what you're doing with Unsleeping City. It's funny, like you're doing Unsleeping City and that's magic realism version of this. And like we're trying to do like the superhero version of that. You rip it off and you put a New York State thing on top of it in instead. And it's just like, I would write, if we're going to tackle this shit, I want to do it in the real world and not do it like when we're also trying to get mixed up with like, orcs and goblins and what does it mean for something to be a monster uh, there's like that terry pratchett quote that's like well all the humans laid down their arms because it was much e like black and white did not fight anymore because it was so much easier to like to kill green instead and like that's something that like oh yeah like that's what fantasy is usually for is making a metaphor but like welcome to 2021 man like we're let's do some we don't need the metaphor it's literally on our doorstep so it's trying to do something that is more here. And like that's just engaging with that as well. And it's it's really difficult to take apart the crusty stuff because so many people have latched onto it and be like, this is my crust. No, this is my crust. You can't have my crust. The This is what it's supposed to be. Oh, I mean, you're not kidding. I mean, like, that's the thing is I I, I remember being a teenager and someone pointing out for the first time that The Hobbit didn't have a single woman in it. Mm -hmm. And being like, that doesn't, that doesn't strike you as weird. They yeah. walked across a whole continent and there wasn't one woman in the whole, in the whole place. And it, uh, uh, it's shocking when you realize the things you love, uh, carry all this venom inside of them and like confronting those hedges. And like you're saying, you know, there's this horrifying thing where you have voices of, like re a real need for justice. And these voices are not saying like, I'm here to ruin the thing you like. They're saying like, hey, this thing you like harms real people today in the real world. And, you know, uh, uh, and trying to commit yourself to doing a better story than was done before, but at the same time, while knowing that your entire mythic imagination has this architecture that was built by the shit that has the problems in it to begin with. So you're like, I got to go back on all these reflexes that were trained in the bad hedge money, right? Um, I want to talk about join the party. First of all, I want to, I'm, I'm like, oh, you said a million things that all deserve an hour long podcast. Forgetting on summer camp. This is what happens to people who go to summer camp. We're like, can we talk about this now? Can we yeah. do that? That's on, that's on both of us. First of all, I want to say that uh, superhero modern, like that is so, so awesome and cool and badass. And I love it. And like you're saying, speaking of specifically being a Jewish game master, superheroes, eight, uniquely Jewish contribution to American mythology. Exactly. Uh, that's why I'm like, we're doing superheroes so that I can canonically punch Nazis and that's in tradition. Like, that's why I want it. In tradition, like, there, there are few things mythologically that you can point like where myths originate from in like the ancient past is a conversation that has to do with levels of archaeology and sociology and anthropology that truly stagger the imagination superheroes aren't like that we can point to the two people that made them up right uh joe schuster jerry siegel superman action comics lifting the car over his head um and it's a i think that's a uh, incredible uh, uh, legacy and man, let me know if a spot opens up and you want me to come play. Um, you know, Brennan, you know, Brennan, you know, I I would love that. But like, we've only met like three times, and now that you now I can do this now. I have 
like it's very fun. It's like you, Abria Iyengar, a couple people that I'm like, I love this person. I have seen them only in screens on a computer because we live in a wild pandemic world. Uh, but uh, a day is coming where you and I will get to throw dice in person. Um, I wanted to talk as well, talking about hedge money, talking about these other issues, about your article uh, uh, and about publishing that, um, specifically talking about uh, anti-Semitism within the canonical kind of like the Western canon of fantasy texts and not just the old school stuff, the recent, you know, like I think it's very well documented in Harry Potter and the instances of it that arrive in D and D talk a little bit about the article, it's Genesis and like how it's been, like what the response to it has been. Um, ooh, okay. Um, yeah, I, I, 2020 has been a time that I've wanted to be as outwardly Jewish as possible because of, you know, the, the everything, the uh, rise of literal actual Nazis and all of that stuff. And I'm like, I'm going to do this. This is something I've been reckoning with a, quite a lot lately. And like, I'm really glad that someone who is as, who loves J.R.R. Tolkien as much as you do, that like, I can say this to you is like, here's the thing, man. Like the dwarves in The Hobbit are literally explicitly Jews. Like yes. he said that in an interview with the BBC. He said like, love that language. They're so they're so warlike. They're stubborn. Love those guys. I knew a bunch of them in World War One. It was tight. And he also said it in a positive way. Whereas like they're they're you know people underestimate them. We love them. Like it's it's a uh, that that was that interview. But like hey, you don't get to like take my people and turn it into a race in your in your story that then became and you don't get to do that. So that's one. The second thing is then like. Everything we know about fantasy is has been encased in carbonite. See, see what I did? I I went over two different genres at the same time because yeah. the the nerd, the nerd things that I said carbonite is that um, now everything that is in the Hobbit and then in Lord of the Rings is now in, is now that's what fantasy is. And like if we're moving past what happened in like before World War II and we're not going to reckon with these things. Well, we're going to have holdovers like, we, you know, Dungeons and Dragons TSR was sued by the Tolkien estate because their shit was too close to to Lord of the Rings because Hobbit, they literally use the word Hobbit like I, I, it's too close. So we know canonically for a fact that this this was taken from this. Yeah. Wizard of the Coast has maintained that. Maybe they've scrubbed some things down. Maybe they've sanded it off in the way that you do over time. But like that, those guts are still there. So like the dwarves, as you and I want to say, as you understand them in The Hobbit and as we understand Gimli, that's what a dwarf is. Those dwarves are the same. And like if that dwarf originally was a Jew, you don't get to just keep doing that dwarf over and over and over again and publish that in your book and keep publishing it and then sell it. Like, that is inherently the problem, that that's in your book that you are saying is canonical Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, as, a, as a Jewish dungeon master myself, I know that you do things at the table because everyone does things at the table to accommodate for the story that they're telling. And that, like, good, you should do that. But, like, the fact that you are putting that on the player to deal with and that a Jewish player needs to deal with that as a dwarf every single time, then, like, that sucks, man. Like, that, that you're making money, that that's canonically in there. Is is a real bummer. Um, they also like liches have was invented by Gary Gygax, which is even stickier. And like the place that a lich keeps their soul is 
like tefillin, which for those of you who don't know is like, I don't know if you've seen photos of Jews with like a box on their head and a box in their arm that's like part of more morning prayers for Jews. It's called tefillin. Like that's what the original description of a lich is where a lich kept their soul was. It's a box that has a, as uh, religious stuff, uh, religious writing in, and you keep it in there. I'm like, that's really weird, especially because like Gary Gygax was someone who like took a lot of interest in studying religions and like was super into that stuff. So like, you must have known my man when you invented this thing. Yeah, and to, like in full transparency, this is like, read, the reason I hope everyone reads the article is this is shit that I have learned like in the past year or two. Like even in earlier seasons of Dimension 20, we had like a pavement golem, which now I would never refer, it would be a construct or an automaton. Even using the term phylactery in my head, I was like, if you, you know, even, and again, this is not just like little teenage Brennan, this is like 20s Brennan being like, oh yeah, phylactery, that's the thing a lich keeps their soul in. It's the, it's the horcrux, right? And we can get into JK Rowling and, and uh, all that. Uh. But the point being like, it is mortifying to know that you have ingested all of this poison through these channels and through the culture and through the hegemony that you were raised in. Uh, and it's a huge service and a generosity on your part to like write articles like this that hopefully allow people to change their storytelling to not replicate these harmful things. Uh, I know my, myself being one of them. Um, I, I want to commend you. I want to commend you on it because like this is, like shout out to the uh, I, I the name of of your consultant escapes me. I just I followed him on Twitter and he's Manish Dana on Twitter, who is one of the most like brilliant, incredible, uh, orthodox black rabbi. Uh, uh, you know, uh, just like one of the most incredibly insightful, golden hearted, uh, just incredibly funny, and and every bit of consulting that he did on the show was like a true blessing and an honor for the show. It was a a very special. We've worked with a lot of consultants, and he is like one of my favorite people I've ever gotten a chance to talk to. Um, he's, I mean, he sounds incredible. I followed him on Twitter. It's an incredible follow. But like, man, when fucking uh, when Lou was like, I want to look in his mouth, and then uh, and then Kingston did, and like the Jewish letters were in there. I was like, ha ha! Finally, one time, man. <laughs> That's a real golem. And like Willie lives in Williamsburg, for God's sakes. Like, mm -hmm. oh my God. It, it was it was such a moment because I've never seen that before outside of me trying to do more intentional stuff. In my own work, like I've never seen it portrayed in Dungeons and Dragons or like even even uh fantasy or genre, like there are very few Jews out there that are like represented as stuff or the Jewish mythology is taken as such. Um and it's just like it's it's you wouldn't know. Because if you read a monster manual, you think a golem is just a construct. And, like, that's what really bums me out, is that, like, Dement we know that Dungeons & Dragons grabs from random shit and throws in their monster manual and calls your mythology or the thing that you love a monster. But, like, man, you really sanded this one down, didn't you? You called uh, you also, like, the skin golem isn't even Frankenstein, which is that actually a golem, which, like, Mary Shelley was actually dealing with that, and that's not what it was. Like... It, that one really bummed me out the most about like the, those three examples were really getting on me. And it really did feel like a piece of service journalism in the way that like, hey, y'all know this exists, right? And I feel like shout out to all of the people in 2020 who were like, you know, this exists, right? Like uh, 
the the Asian folk who said that Oriental adventures still existed and uh, all of the work that, that's just one that came to my mind but all the work of pushing on those things and like Romani people being examined in Curse of Strahd but like I didn't see one explicitly for for Jews and I'm like I want to do this as a piece of service journalism which is which is out there uh, it's an incredible uh, work of service journalism and and hopefully people read it are cognizant of all the things that are being laid out here of like the explicit way in which dwarves were modeled after Jews in Middle Earth of, you know, like there are some things that I think are more widely spread where it's like the goblins in Harry Potter because of the widespread nature of that, that's been like documented more. And there are so many other nefarious things like the phylactery thing, like all of this that that go to these deep places and say, this fantasy is not welcoming to everybody, its it, its focus is so much more narrow than you can understand unless you take the time to search, seek out articles like this. Unless you take the time to look at the journalism that's being done, you know. Um, in I, you, oh, sorry, go for it. No, I appreciate that. And, and there's something just because you're sitting in front of me and you understand is like I want to tell like in a crown of candy. I had to turn to my partner Amanda, who who is Catholic and who has known my DMing style. She was one of the players on Join the Party. And I'm like, hey, what's a heterodoxy? <laughs> like, what, <laughs> you, like, can you help me? Like, what's a Pontifex? Can you help me? Like, that is not, I, I'm not being like, oh, ring the bell, let's go fucking get Brennan. But like, <laughs> that is a fantasy trope. And A Crown of Candy explicitly played in the King, Game of Thrones fantasy tropes. But it's mm -hmm. like, the fact that there is a bad church is also just like the fact that a church exists. And like, mm -hmm. that is just something that's tough. And then I'm like, oh, there's a crusade. No, wait, I know what, I know what part, what part this, <laughs> with, the, with the crusade. And it's like, I know what you were doing there, be that you're playing in fantasy tropes and you're deconstructing this Game of Thrones shit. But I'm also just like, I hate that this is just in fantasy. That like, we assume that their Christian heaven and Christian hell are the defaults. That like every place has a church, which is the the capital C church, and like really trying to take apart those things. I was trying to do it, and you at least I'm going to do it in a modern world where the only thing that's different is that like we jumped forward 30 years and there are superheroes. Like that's the thing I'm trying to struggle with because there's so much to do. Yeah, I mean, homie, I'm like I am right there with you in terms. Of, it's so funny because like you're saying, like it is it is a, a part of the hegemony to include this Catholic church when in reality. Like I was raised on pagan stories, like Irish, Celtic, old school. I went to Beltane festivals growing up. So to me, the, with Catholic cousins, like Irish Catholic cousins, I have never been baptized, let alone confirmation, let alone any of that other shit. Either, fuck yeah, dude. Fuck Why yeah, not? right? Like my, I found out recently from my dad that like my Irish Catholic grandmother like wept and wept because they wouldn't baptize me. And the, you know, so, but what's so funny is regardless of the alternative ways in which I was raised, I, the, the degree to which I default to heaven and hell, when I think back on it, I go like, is that Christ, is, is that the Catholicism I didn't get raised in? Or is that straight up Looney Tunes? Right. Because the earliest memories I have are you get shot, angel, harp, halo, you shoot up. That's cartoons, baby. Like it's so uh, pernicious and insidious, and it's there is a wild degree to which, even when you assume that you maybe have escaped certain parts of it, right. how much have you really escaped them? 
honestly, though, it's just restrictive. When we're talking about D&D as a storytelling game, you're like, oh, here's the thing, man. Angels need to come down when you die. Sorry, man. Like that's regardless of the story, regardless of your world that you've been homebrewing for 10 years and like that it lays in a totally different plane of existence. Gotta have angels. Gotta have St. Peter. Like, sorry. And I think it's I think it is the thing that holds us down. Like I am once again, I am not excoriating you for this. It is wild to think that this is just everywhere, especially in the United States. The things that we take American and Christian when you think about like just ideas of morality and like what we assume and like shout out, ha shout out to our government and all that fun stuff is like those two things are so interchangeable. And like when it is uh, handcuffing us to the thing that we are understand, we think we understand about our world. And it's just like, it's tough. The worst thing about this is that like we're, we're trying to exist in a world that doesn't exist. And we are still shackled to the ideas of Christianity in the United States. Which is just like, I would love, like, everyone, let's all do something different. Like, let's, also, here's a really funny joke. Just whenever you say heaven and hell, just say Christian heaven and hell. And it's just like, it's instantly funnier. Just like, oh man, my cat died. Went right to Christian heaven. Good cat. <laughs> he went, went straight to Christian cat heaven. Um, yeah. uh, uh, the, I mean, like, like you're saying, it is something that has been, like, that I am very, Again, I say it would be wrong to say I'm very aware of it. I struggle to be more aware of it every day that I can because the roots go so deep. And it's, this, again, this wild thing of like, I can count on one hand the amount of times I went to church as a child, almost exclusively for a cousin's whatever, right? Like a family, an extended family function. And the degree to which like, oh, but we celebrate Christmas because Christmas is uh, secular, theoretically. You know, like that idea of like, oh, well, Christmas is just like a tree and food and Nat King Cole. Christmas is not X, Y, Z, other thing, you know? Here's something wild that I learned from watching Defunct Land. Like, you know, that YouTube series about like uh, um, uh, roller coasters, but also they do like cartoons and TV shows sometimes. Mm -hmm. There is a Christmas episode of Buzz Lightyear in Star Command where Buzz Lightyear finds Space Santa and he drives his sleigh. Like, why did you have, like, why did you do that? Like, there's no reason for you to do that. Obviously, I know there's a reason why they wanted there to be a Christmas episode. You're playing to America, blah, blah, blah. But, like, there's no reason why Santa needed to exist in Buzz Lightyear Star Command a uh, universe. Like, unless you're writing an incredible Christmas AU, I just don't understand why this is here. I... So I think that what is interesting to me about like, like you're saying, like, why do the realms of our farthest imagination need to constantly come back to this, dipping to the same well? So here's the, here's the interesting like thought experiment, or maybe just like the puzzle of moving forward. What does a better version of storytelling look like? Is it imposing on our cultural storytelling, which D&D &D or not is largely controlled by companies. Right. We're, we are talking on a vodcast produced by a company right now. We're a very small company. I think we try to do the right thing where and when we can, but talk about big tentpole blockbusters. Talk about Disney and all the IP they own. Talk about podcast networks and studios. Talk about D&D &D, uh, and Wizards of the Coast is the goal to 
push these institutions, which we already understand are these large corporate institutions, to make their storytelling more inclusive. Like what? Like in other words, uh, and I'm not putting this on you as like Eric. You seem to have a big problem. How the hell do you propose we fix it? I mean, genuinely, because it racks my brain and keeps me up at night. Like, is the is the answer a less Eurocentric, Christian-centric Dungeons and Dragons, or is it a different new game? If it's a different new game, how do we feel about different people playing that game? If it's a new, like, like, and again, I say all this with the understanding of like, this is the conversation. Hopefully there is an answer somewhere here, but obviously it's a journey and it's complex to arrive at the right answer. I think it's the, it's about having a critical eye, just being aware of it. And then it's like, is this the story you dungeon master at your table want to tell mm-hmm. and like then it's so that's the on the smallest level just like dungeon masters being aware more people of different all different types of creeds and credos being at, being the dungeon master being the one who makes the world and then hearing if someone is like this makes me feel a type of way <sighs> the biggest problem i have is always still just like the fact that this is published in books that you can buy and sell and mm-hmm. like yeah, change some of the stuff in the book that everyone buys and thinks. Uh, when you don't think of it, when you think of it as gospel, and mm-hmm. when it does, and you don't put that critical eye to it, then you have a problem. I do think it's about moving Dungeons and Dragons to a better place. But like, Dungeons and Dragons is really good at like some stuff, telling a story that is heroic and involves violence of some sort of way. Like Dungeons & Dragons is the best game system for that. The bones of that is there. I just wish that the published works didn't exclude me. And then it's all, let's all play lots of different games. Dungeons & Dragons is not great at heists. So I love Blades in the Dark. Uh, I love Masks, which is about uh, teenagers and young adults becoming superheroes. And it's probably the game that I love the most because it follows form and function where, like, the powers don't matter as much as your emotions matter. So it's like everyone should be well-rounded and, like, being aware of the stuff that you're doing. I just don't like that the book put is like, oh, I don't know, that you figure you figure it out. So it's a responsibility both of the company and of the players and the Dungeon Masters together. That's, that's just a tough thing. And, like... We do have a responsibility, you and me and the people who make media, that like we are putting this out there for larger consumption because we're allowing people to look at our table. So like doing something interesting and doing something different, which is like um, even fantasy, the way fantasy high is different in, in high in it's not high fantasy. It's John Hughes or the way that Unsleeping City is very different or the way that. Um, or the way that the second campaign of Join the Party is different, that we're going to do superheroes and be modern and change it and realize you can change and display that and put your best foot forward. Like, I'm not saying I'm perfect at this stuff, but at least, like, I'm trying to keep this in mind and this is what I'm giving you and I want you to enjoy it. Like, maybe here's the other teacher thing in me. I feel so protective of my listeners that they're getting a good games experience. Like, mm-hmm. in the party, we te- in our first two episodes of our first campaign, we teach people how to play. Like, in- inserted into our story, we pop in and be like, hey, we're making a check. A check is when you roll the dice to figure out if an action goes good or bad. Both good rolls and bad rolls are good for storytelling. And then, we- and then we go out and then we go back into the story. We Like, I want them to learn how to play, and I want them to realize that D&D can be it, the bones of it can be used in so many different ways it's not just the what like someone in a room being like is this but is this dungeons and dragons 
Like, that's not what it is, even if that's what's happening in the corporate office of Wizards of the Coast. Like, I, I just want them to experience that. And, like, I, we're really – we have transcripts. We try to be as accessible as possible. We want our audio to sound as good as possible so everyone will have a good time listening to it right from the jump. Like, it's about being intentional now with Dungeons & Dragons Media. The thing that I, I was saying all the way back in the beginning of this conversation is that I, we were, I heard the Adventure Zone, and I'm like, man, I could do that too. You can make a show and put it out there and be intentional. And like and and realize what you're doing, the storytelling of what you're doing, and we wanted to do that and join the party right from the jump. And hopefully, we're doing that. We did that in campaign one. I'm being really intentional and really thinking about that stuff in campaign two. Like I'm pulling all of my favorite shit from Blades in the Dark and Masks and other Dungeon World and Powered by the Apocalypse games. Like I'm pulling that in here to try to give someone a really great experience. And I feel that weight when people listen to join the party, and I hope they enjoy it. I really want them to enjoy it. Um. Man, the, I, I so appreciate your uh, insight, your clear passion f uh, uh, for this and for, like you're saying, like storytelling that is like inclusive and meaningful. And it's so it's so funny to me of like funny is not the right word. It's it is it is so clear that watching negative reactions yeah. to calls for things to improve. And I, even for myself in, in like, you know, like I feel like most creators, I am always more cognizant of the places that I have failed or that I let myself down or let other people down. Uh, and it's wild to me when people look at these criticisms as coming from anything other than a place of love and disappointment of like, Right. You could be caring for people better. This could include more people. This could make more people feel welcome. This is only a good thing. All of these criticisms are only a good thing. All of these ways in which we are asking people to improve, which is like, I don't know, man, you get one short human life. It's like, you know, what, do I have a bus to catch? Like, no, I can spend my life just trying to get better. And you got to make your peace with uh, dropping the ball. You got to make your peace with there will be errors along the way. But if you're not committing yourself at least to the process, uh, it's so it's very it is very like spiriting and moving and inspiring to hear you talk about this because it's uh, uh, like like you're saying. Uh, I would just hope that uh, everyone engaging in storytelling or that has the rare gift to be able to make decisions like the ones you're talking about uh, would bring the same. Uh, weight of consideration care and kindness uh that you do thank um, you i really appreciate that man listen i the dimension 20 had made me want to step my fucking game up like, <laughs> it's just like oh you can do that you could do that in dungeons and dragons and it's just like listen you're doing the work as well and uh i cannot say how uh nice it was to see the go willy be an actual real fucking jewish golem man like it was i've never seen it anywhere else it's like I'm only saying this to your face because you are right here. And like, then I'm like, Hey, like, Hey, remember these fantasy tropes wild because like you're doing the fucking work too. And like, I just, I want to appreciate it. Like, and that you also understand. And, uh, man, I can't believe J.R.R. Tolkien just basically said, no, nah, the dwarves were Jews. They were <laughs> love those fuckers, but they are. Well, that's the thing. I like. Th there needs to be. It, yeah, it's one of the. I mean, we. I. I also want to take time to talk about joining the party and everything else. But like you're talking about, it's like I like. How do we like 
have the seismic shaking of everything. Like that's the that's the funny thing is is when you're talking about it's one thing to have a house where you can actually you can actually make the choice of like the rot in this house is too deep. We're going to knock it down and we're going to build a new house somewhere else. But when you're talking about something like culture, it's like man, my brain is already shaped by that. I can't even trust my brain. How do I, how do we fix this when even the tools we're using to address it are already compromised by the exact problems we're talking about? Um, exactly. It, uh, you know, it'll keep you up at night and it'll make you, uh, yeah, it'll keep you up at night. <laughs> I'd ra listen, th this is what I was just saying, though. I'd rather do the work. He I'm trying to do the work in the game system. Like, listen, I don't work there. But, like, yeah. I'm playing this game, and I'm pulling in all my favorite parts of as many games as possible, and I'm trying to make this creative, th this this piece of content for you that is that demonstrated that this c can be good. It's like we're trying to we're trying to influence from the outside when you're like, hey, you know the guy, you guys are making the books. Could you change this? That'd be nice. Well, and that's sort of exactly what it is, right? Is you want to see, like, I don't know what the, I don't know what's beyond the horizon. But like you're saying, weirdly, it's that thing of like, I want to see the mythic consciousness that is not so dominated by the vision of one mid-century Catholic writer, you know? Uh, but in order, to, the, I think the, the challenge, of course, is in order to do that, you can't have a single author. Like something that is truly inclusive, everyone needs that, like you need the authenticity of perspectives from the places you are actually trying to represent. And that requires a mass collaborative effort. Like even within the things Dimension 20 is doing, like, you know, we, I, I, we hire consultants, I do as much research as I can, but everything I, if yeah. you have money, hire consultants. I don't know everything. I've hired consultants. I don't For know. Sure. But I even mean that like the work of a single author is never going to really get the job done. Like anything that I'm solo DMing is always going to be limited by all of the, of just the, the fact that it's a single point of view. So hopefully whatever the next, uh, the next heroic fantasy thing is, has, you know, a hundred authors working on it from all different places that can bring that beauty of perspective uh, that is so sorely lacking. Um, um, I want to talk about join the party. I want to talk about the games you have done. I had so much fun playing with you on our top of the rock. Uh, our, 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 so much fun. Uh, it was an absolute blast. Um, uh, but I want to talk a little bit about uh, both uh, join the party um, and kind of for, like, again for like our viewers here, like uh, uh, the ethos of the show, because you do awesome modern storytelling in it. You're doing really exciting things with D and D, and you've also designed your own games. I want to hear about uh, uh, you know things like No Capes and Clear Eyes, Full Heart. Um, uh, uh, what is join the party? What's the ethos of the show? What are the kind of stories you tell? Wonderful. Yes, um, join the party was inspired by the boom from the from the Avenger Zone, knowing that you can make media with this game and trying to be as intentional and be like, let's tell a story we want to see out in the world. And I think that we, since we were professional podcasters, we are like, we're going to edit it, we're going to sound design it, we're going to have these microphones, these, the best microphones we can get our hands on, we're going to try our best to be as inclusive in, in both like, 
inclusive to people who've played Dungeons & Dragons before or not, and really get everyone to come together. I think that this is finally coalesced in our second campaign where we're doing this modern storytelling thing. And, like, I have learned so much as a Dungeon Master uh, that I want everyone's... Uh, a, like, I want to have a collaborative story, and I want to have a collaborative world. And this time I wanted to have a conversation about power. We were doing this in... in we started in late 2019 and then everything changed. <laughs> things started to change when we started uh, this campaign. And I'm like, I want to do a story, a uh, superhero campaign. And I wanted it to talk about like how power and your ability to do th like you, if you are given power, what do you do with it? And I think that that's a ripe conversation for storytelling. Um, the way that, that uh, the, the world building of, of campaign two goes is that this, the small lake town in upstate New York, which is named Lake Town, of course. Um, there, a mad, a mad scientist, Dr. Cassandra Morrow, is working up there, and she discovers a new element, which is called diaphragm, and it explodes in the way that it does in like the in the 80s, and like it gets in the water and it gets into people, and then these people are just like a little bit better, like they're a little bit fitter, and they uh, they don't age as, as much, and like they seem okay. And then, like this this thing, and as doc, as Dr. Morrow uh, figured out that diaphragm was a an energy source and could be used to push technology forward very quickly, like within 50, 10, 15 years, twenty years, this small this small upstate town has turned into a metropolis, the size of Portland, and then becomes the capital of New York State. And then we have this tension between Lake Town City, as it now is. And New York City, there's like a high-speed rail that connects the two. They have a hockey team. Go Mountain Lobsters. Rah, rah, go Mountain Lobsters. Um, <laughs> and like, and then we have the superhero thing because now the the people who were infected with the diaphragm immediate, uh, the, the delta rays, the delta radiation, has now passed this on to their children, and they have like full-fledged superpowers. Uh, and how do we, I reckon with that when the people before you were just like, oh yeah, like, man, I look great for 60 and I look no, no older than at age of 30. Like, what do you do when you have the power, but no one has told you what to do? And I think that's something that we were reckoning with, reckoning with and we start, um, and we start with, um, immediately. And, um, the way that no capes is, is like, okay, how do we turn D and D classes into superheroes, into superpowers, and like the idea of magic or or key points if you're a monk or like your ability to fight or, or raging as a barbarian. That's just they just call those superpowers in the X Men. Those are just mutants, my man. Like, yeah. and then and then a gra and grafting that one onto another. Like, um, Iceman. Iceman's a sorcerer. He he has ice powers, and all of his spells are ice powers. And like um, you could talk about uh, Wolverine and his ability to soak up damage. He's a barbarian. And that that's when you start figuring those out and making those one to one. Jessica Jones is a monk straight up. Uh, Luke Cage, also also a barbarian. Um, mm -hmm. I came up with a subclass that was like Nightcrawler, where you're where you're a rogue, but also you have the ability to access all the teleporting powers that are yes. in in uh, in um, the like the all the books and stuff. And like when you realize that and that power and magic are interchangeable, then you can start ha telling your story in this more broken out modern world. Um, 
and yeah, it, it's been it's been a lot of fun to do. I, I love it. We're we're like in the middle of the campaign right now. It's ramping up. Like things are getting really wild right now. There's like organized cr- there's organized crime and there's corrupt like corrupt government people and there are super villains and there are rival superhero teams and it's been really fun. I, I also really like telling superhero stories outside of the Marvel DC con- compendium or continuum. Because I'm like, yeah. I want to play with this, and I'm going to play with your shit, but, like, I'm not part of your company. So, like, I want to tell some, a more broader story. And, like, being able to do that with tabletop role-playing and with D&D, which still has all, like, the, the fighting and the, and the complications and the traps and the heroism, um, it's been really fun to do. It's been a great – it's been really fun to do on Join the Party. Uh, incredibly exciting. And again, like you're talking about, uh, it's the kind of story that like super, I feel like superhero storytelling is really meant to tell. It's been a very interesting thing. You know, it's, it's a, like you're saying, we, you know, we're in an age right now where superhero storytelling is at a certain zenith, like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You can, if people can feel whatever way they want to about it. It's a pretty wildly, compelling thing at least in the history of like media and storytelling of like a group of interconnected movies like trying to think of the last time like the studio system did something like that and for for, again like people can criticize these movies and they uh, rightfully should but part of the reason it's important to criticize them is this is like popular culture is culture like you know People get their understanding of ethics not from the like heights of academia, but rather from like popular culture. It's the stories that we're all stories are the zip files for our culture and values. Like it's how we all agree on like, hey, what are the what are what are our short condensed bites of life that we draw meaning from that we go to in these big you know mass ways? Our TV shows and our movies and our books that explain how we're supposed to be to each other. Uh, yeah. And superheroes are there's there's all these interesting things within that medium of like exploring power because that's the definition of the thing is like powers like uh, like what are you supposed to do with these incredible gifts um, when you settle on something like a theme like that like hey superheroes in this world mm-hmm. are are about you're, it, we're talking about power as it relates to ethics and more specifically how it disconnects, how you have one, now how do I plug this into the other? And is that something you sit down with your players at the table to talk to them about? Is that something that you go over with them? How do you orchestrate your storytelling themes as a dungeon master with your players while maintaining that kind of uh, player and DM agency of they don't necessarily know what's coming down the trail. Right. Oh, that's such a good question. I think that be, in campaign two, I was as honest as possible with them about uh, we had these bigger conversations. We recorded like four episodes, two where we talked about the one where we talked about the world, one where we talked about their characters. And then we did like a modified version of a quiet year, which I called RPG City Planner which is where I created a modern city. You take a small town and then you blow it up into a city. Um, And we did it together. Like they were part of the world building and they knew where I was coming from. And the first episode, I was like, these are my values. I definitely want to talk about these things. And this is what I think might happen as we go forward. And as we push things, as as we move things forward. 
Um, and then they're like, okay, well, there should be a, a neighborhood that represents the incredibly quick growth of industry. And I'm like, okay, that's industry town, industry tin that we put in there. And I'm like, oh, because of that, there needs to be a place where they made, uh, where they made uh, housing really, really quickly. That is like kind of shoddy, but like uh, now it's like uh, uh, an affordable place for people to get housing. So we made like a, a company tin right above industry tin. And like then building on top of those things and doing that all together is what is what happened. I think it all it's all about being saying that from the jump because you can say your values. That's not going to su surprise. That's not going to ruin any surprise that's coming down the pike. Uh, I think that, that that's fair. Be like, I want to have a conversation about power, about people not preparing you for this power. We have blown so far past the time we were supposed to start a answering audience questions oh. and i don't care i'm having a great time yeah um, i'm yeah. A, i'm too brennan yay uh, it's it tr uh, truly getting to hang is uh, always such a fucking pleasure and especially getting deep into the nitty-gritty i'm gonna reveal the secret part of my heart i'm gonna reveal an insecurity i have about mm. gming and specifically my gming and i want to throw it at you is it New York City references that no one else gets? Is that it? <laughs> How do I reference more obscure stuff? Um, uh, <laughs> I don't remember one sandwich place that doesn't exist anymore, but I loved it. In Top of the Rock, we went like a full three minutes on just palm frites. So I'm... <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but well, I, I have to explain what Top of the Rock is. To celebrate Unsleeping City, I had Brennan come on for Join the Party, and we played um, Sports or Just Numerology, which was yes. like for us a wonderful, wonderful one-page uh, one uh, tabletop RPG to tell like a sports story. Then we had it set in the Unsleeping City. So we, we did like a, a quasi-wrestling like Ragnarok, like Ragnarok fight sort of thing, where like in or instead of doing like budget, like budget meetings, they would just have a wrestling match instead, and we had like two wrestlers who would go at each other, and we packed as many New York City references. You know, this bad boy right here can fit so many New York City references. Ah, beautiful. I miss it so much. Um, here's the thing I will share. Sure. When you are. DMing, when you're GMing, when you're storytelling, whatever, whatever, any of the many terms that different tabletops use for it. There is a degree to which you are doing multiple things at the same time. Like one of the easy ways to put it is you're, you're a physics engine. Someone's like, I'm gonna jump. And you're gonna be like, this is how hard the jump is. It's a totally arbitrary call. I, but me and my, you trust me to be some kind of impartial arbiter about this wall's harder to climb than this wall. And I know because I'm going to give you a different number for each one, right? Now, as things move along in complexity, one of the things that I often think about, and this might be the philosophy major in me, mm -hmm. is there are physical consequences. I don't have any problem if someone crashes a car being like, you're gonna get hurt, you crashed a car. We all know how cars work. As things move from the realm of the physical into the emotional, and then into the like moral and ethical, in those moments of like sharing your values with your players where you're like, this is the kind of story I'm interested in telling or exploring. One of the things that comes up with me a lot is even my close friends, may have a really different read on the morality of this situation. And in that case, how confident do I feel being the moral engine of this universe? Because let's be clear, this made up world is just in my 
bad, flawed, fallible brain. And it freaks me out, man. Easy example that it straddles the kind of emotional to moral line is spoilers for uh, fantasy high sophomore year. Uh, uh, you know, um, uh, Kristen keeps a piece of information from uh, her girlfriend Tracker that has to do with Tracker's like surrogate father, her uncle Jawbone, getting cheated on. And I jump into being like, wow, I can't believe Allie wouldn't have Kristen tell Tracker about that. I'm going to enforce a consequence. Tracker's going to get really upset that that information was kept from them. And I did it. And then there's a reaction the moment from Emily and Allie that again, straddles a line between player and character where they're like, wow, Tracker uh, really, you know, like Tracker's reaction, like, or, or Sharon, like, I don't think Tracker's reaction is right. Why should you have to share that information? And all of a sudden there's this moment where I go, am I the world or am I just some guy who has a wrong idea about how this should be working? I have the same issue. I have a character called the Knight of Mirrors. And the Knight of Mirrors rides around on a, uh, they're a reskinned cavalier. So they mm -hmm. ride around on their motorcycle and they're tight of shit. And they have like reflective re reflective armor. And they're like the Knight of, in the Knight of Mirrors reflecting back on them. And they're like, like the Red X. You know, I, I binged all of Teen Titans once I got HBO Max. Finally came to Roku. Shout out to HBO and Roku for working that shit out. Woo! <laughs> Let's go. So I'm like, <laughs> so like they're like the Red X. They're not even Batman-ish. It's really just like I'm doing my own thing regardless if there are people around and like, we'll work together. I thought they were just kind of neutral. And like I've had, and our characters are just like, yeah, I see them as a friend. It's like, no, I don't trust them. I don't like them at all. And I'm like, I, the, the, I just need, I feel like I just need to play the character because the character has feelings and like they are the ones who's controlling the narrative, not you morality. Like, I feel like I remember when that happened. I'm like, yeah, tracker would have been super pissed. Like, yeah, you're coming down hard on your friends, but like you kept. You kept stuff from Tracker. You're her girlfriend. Of course she's going to be super upset. That threatens relationships all the time. So, like, as the dungeon master, I try to play the character as much as possible. So then the Knight of Mirrors running around being masked and, like, no one knows anything about them. I'm like, yeah, there's probably – there's a reason why. Like, they don't want to be seen. They don't want any – they don't want any of this stuff – no one, they don't want to be seen. They no, they don't want their identity to be known by anyone. And like sometimes, they, uh, they get the jump on our, on my players, and like they find out because they're also like Batman-ish, that they're like a, a super detective in that way, because they, they're unknown in that way. And I'm like, yeah, they're, they're. I, at one point, I was just like, yeah, sorry, I, I found out about your secret identities. I really didn't mean it. I really want to keep this professional. Like I'm really sorry about that. I didn't mean it. So like, it's just like if, if the Knight of Mirrors is just like this is a job. Other superheroes are also part of that job and occupation. Like, I want to run it like that. Maybe you can say like this is this is what my character would do. Is the DM's way of being like, this is what the char the character would do. That I'm sorry. I'm sorry I hurt you. I'm sorry. I love the Knight of Mirrors. The Knight of Mirrors is my heart. That Mirrors sounds so badass. I love that so goddamn much. And yeah, I think you're right. There is, characters are allowed to have their own inner ethos and compass. So I think that makes sense, right? And I think that it only, it, it gets one step trickier, 
I think, because we understand that a lot of stories have morals. And I personally subscribe to the school of thought that a story that isn't attempting to have a moral still has a moral that is just now either subconscious or unintended or a byproduct or whatever. Like there are, I don't care who you are. You got values in your work somewhere. Uh You got some values. There are some assumptions about meaning in there. Yeah, Um, it's fair. I mean, listen, I even, I have to play the organ. I have to play organized crime with some values. Like we're uh, uh, Val, who's uh, our, our barbarian who has like some vague, who also has like, she, they're, they're Val is they, them. Uh, Val is from Little Italy and like their dad is a mob, is a mob person in New York City. And like they're struggling with that. But it's so like, I need to play mobsters with some amount of value. What do mobsters value? They value power and they value family. And like, those are things that you need to rely on. I think the thing that really helps me with that is um, thinking about Blades in the Dark, in that Blades in the Dark, for those of you who don't know, it's about heists. And it's, a, it's the idea that like you are one faction within tons of factions in a city. And remembering that people do things when you're not there is the most helpful thing for being a dungeon master to me. That like things happen because you did something, but also because you didn't do something. Yeah. And check on this. And I think that that's what happens. It's not about morality. It's about the values you have instilled into your world and people who you are controlling who are not on screen are doing shit doing that. It's like the mob is acting in their own interest because you're not checking up on them because you're also protecting them in a little bit away because you're involved in this. And also, um, I've had to do so many Italian accents and it's been so much fun. <laughs> all Danny Zuko in some level and Julia, who plays Val, is so kind to me about it. And it's like, oh, you what, you think you're better than me? It's like, it's a lot of this. And um, she, uh, Julia also let me name uh, the guy who owns the pizza place where Val works at, uh, Dominic Toretto V, which was really kind of <laughs> Oh my God. I'm five. He's down five. Uh, Incredible. Um, Okay. We absolutely have to do at least a couple of questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I Uh, love the the teacher and me is like, boom. Yeah, I'll answer your study questions. Let's do it. Let's do it. In the Great Gatsby, it's not just about, it's also about uh, the degradation of society. It's not just about riches. I got you. Uh, Incredible. Uh, This first question comes to us from Kaylee. Thanks, Kaylee. Hi, Kaylee. Uh, Kaylee, uh, says, hi, I hope you are doing well. I am the DM slash keeper for my family's monster of the week campaign. And I've started to make plans on how to end the campaign. What tips do you have for planning the end of a campaign and tying together the end of a story? Kaylee, a great question. Incredible question, Kaylee. Also shout out for doing stuff for your family. That must be really tough. And I, I'm so proud of you. Ending a campaign, we've done that with campaign one. We put a bow on it. The thing that I wish I had done was, and the thing that I do now is explicitly ask my players what they want, because there's again that is not a spoiler. It you you can still give them in some surprise way what they want. It's like what is your goal? What is something you want to accomplish by the end of this thing? And just make sure you hit that in some way, whatever the dice say, at least entertain that a little bit. Again, asking your players what they want is not bad. You can still surprise them. And um, I hope you do. A hundred percent. Truly, truly. Remember that 
this is the, the part of the problem of the end is in any set, like you can have a session as a player where you're like a little bit of a wallflower, a little bit less this, you, you don't take the spotlight as much. But when you're wrapping up, there's not next week's session to come back and get a little bit more spotlight than you got last week. Like everyone's got to get their shots in. So like, I think, you know, in Dimension 20, there have been some finales that due to our shooting schedule had to get rushed. And it's always heartbreaking for me because I want to give everybody so much spotlight to be like, no, 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 like take as much time as you need for everything your character wants to do here at the end. Um, Dimension 20 has been great in terms of part, part of doing an anthology season with these very short, you know, max, you know, 17, 18 episode seasons, you know, sophomore years, 24 or five, is that I've had to end stories over and over and over again. It's great practice. Um, it's hard. It's, it's hard. It's hard. Be because let me tell you something. I don't know if people are finding this out for the first time. Actual play Improvised. <laughs> it's improvised. Wait, what have I been doing with all these scripts around? <laughs> oh my God. Oh. The idea of having to memorize a new two hour script every week. Good Lord. Um, but the whole point of an ending is it's the payoff where everything that happened makes sense and it comes back and you go, wow, nothing was accidental. That's hard to do in a novel where literally nothing is accidental, let alone a multi-person collaborative improvised whatever. So I would say, you know, maybe this is uh, silly of me to say, but uh, go easy on yourself. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah making everything matter and everything pay off and everything come back when a lot of these decisions were made with like an empty bowl of Doritos in front of you and you're hungry and you're in a long combat and someone's on their phone. Like it can be hard uh, to make it all pay off. Um, I, maybe, uh, definitely the best part about doing a game by yourself is that it's not recorded and no one else will see it. So like, <laughs> If you need to redo something, I'm not saying like fudging a role necessarily, but like if you need to make a new choice or you want to rework a scene, absolutely do it and like make sure that everyone is happy. Also, do a schlocky anime, anime ass epilogue, like one that's perfect for everyone. Just do it. You're going to love it and like make all the jokes you want. Like, again, the thing that I love, I'm now playing D&D like uh, for fun. And I'm, D I'm DMing still, but it's, like, nice to have reps where I don't need to come up with good uh, names for stuff. Um, and, like, uh, like it's been so nice to remember that, like, no one's going to see this and you're just doing it for your own enjoyment. So just remember that and be as saccharine and as silly as you want, uh, especially for you and your fam. Uh, hell yes. Um, I also, I'm very light on prep for most of the time. Endings yeah. is a lot of prep. Endings, I will meticulously go back through all of the session notes. I will say, is there a beloved NPC somewhere that can pop up and say like, you left me in the mines, but I wanted to come say congratulations on beating this big bad person. You know, like that, that vibe uh, can be very, very, it can be nice to uh, give yourself a hand with those loose ends. Um, Absolutely. Uh, this next one comes to us from Patrick. Thanks, Patrick. Hi, Patrick. Uh, woo! I am running my first ever campaign, and the players are approaching the end of the short module. How would you recommend transitioning from a pre-written module to telling your own stories? 
great question. Great question. I will say I've never used a module before. Like uh, the, I've just kind of threw myself into the DMing uh, deep end. Uh, like my second time DMing, I had to come up with what I was doing on the fly because someone couldn't show up. And then I made one of my players cry because I touched. It was Julia who was the same one who did was plays Val. I made her cry because it, it was a whole thing. It was a bit with Koatoa and a god and a demigod was also her character's father. And I'm like, hey, maybe I'm good at this. So like I never got a chance to do the the module. Um, what I will say is, like, you could o always just like start over. <laughs> like, don't feel like you need to continue. You could just keep, like, take the characters and take all of the connective tissue and put it in a new world. That would be really fun for me. Like, the thing that always makes me bothered and something that I love from other games like Fiasco is that the relationships between the characters aren't established and that's really difficult to deal with. But then you could always, like, just figure out if you do want to do a homebrew world. Like, you don't have to start in Phandalin and keep Phandalin in your world because Phandalin's, like, fine. It's a, it's a fantasy. It's a little fantasy town. So, like, feel free to just take everything and just put it in a new world. My, my advice is copy and paste. <laughs> I totally agree with that. Similarly, I tried to run a module one time. I, there's a whole anecdote about it in the very first episode of Adventuring Academy with me and Lou Wilson. Yes. It 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 was it did not go well. Um, it went off the rails immediately. Uh, uh, and I think for me, th there is always this. I have always looked at modules as sort of the ultimate form of preparation, and I think of them a lot in the way of like heavy armor and a tower shield and you're protecting yourself with all of this stuff uh, to, to insulate yourself against anything unexpected happening. But fundamentally, I, I feel like you are gonna yield more results in the long run by being a dexterity-based fighter. You're gonna yield more results in the long run by, and, and this is, listen, people are welcome to disagree with me. When I have tried to run modules, even I ran something, ran a module recently, uh, for, and I, I, I was like flop sweating the whole time. It's like I was panicked because I was like, oh God, do I remember? Like that, that PDF told me to do something. What did that PDF want me to do? And all, all it does to, in, in my eyes is like keep me from listening to my players and seeing where their interest is right now in this moment at the table. Um, so. I would say that your the way to transition is to realize you only ever need to know the next thing to say. You don't need to know what's happening in two or three things because again, your players will inform a lot of that. Your players will like, uh, uh, watching their interest will help you create what the next steps are going to be. Um, make up as much as makes you feel comfortable uh, and then improvise the rest. I realize this could be terrible. This might, you know, I, I hope I'm not doing an easy for me to say kind of thing of yeah. like, you know, as someone who took 10 years of improv classes, just make it up. Next question. Um, but uh, I hope I feel that there are uh, the, the soil is richer in that place where you are collaborating more with your players and following their focus and interest and letting that guide your creativity. I always agree with that. I, I it's, I mean, how can you improv if you, if you how can you make up the uh, McCringle in the 
behind the, the, the soda shop. If it's written, it'd be like, if they go behind the soda shop, tell them not to, because there's nothing there. Like it's, you're, you are being, it's, those are your training wheels. Like a, you got it, man. Like I believe in you. I, again, it feels a little easy, easy for you to say, but like truly let your, let your fiction flag fly. Ooh, let your fiction flag fly. I love it. Possible episode name. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, this next one comes to us from Spellbreaker. Thanks, Spellbreaker. Hi, Spellbreaker. Ooh. Woo. Woo. How do you build your world before session zero, and how do you modify it based on PC backstories and details? Love this question. Uh, and obviously, uh, Eric, you've already gone into a really cool process, like involving a quiet year and other stuff that I feel like is extremely dope. But let's just shout out for a second the assumption baked into this question of uh, you should modify your world after the PCs get built, which is like, Art. not everybody does that. That's perfect. Good. Good job. Good job with your assumption of your question already. You're fine. Next question. <laughs> you already, it was inside of you the entire time. <laughs> the magic was in you the whole time. Um, uh, a million percent. Um, yeah, well, I think that, that there's, there's an interesting thing here. Um, and I'd be interested in hearing both for your home games and for Join the Party. Because Join the Party has, like, that's an incredibly beautiful, like, that would be so much fun to do a quiet year to build the setting together. For me, there is this two-part world building. There's world building before the PCs are there and world building after the PCs are there. And, it, but for me, even at those points, it all centers around the PCs. Because what what I'm doing when I'm building the world, like like when I'm telling my friends, like I got a new campaign setting I'm cooking up. Like in that moment, all I'm trying to do is say, I'm gonna make some shit that will make my friends go ooh and ah. Like, I'm just making some shit that they will think, how cool, how fun. And I also, from my like LARP writing background, you know, I, I remember my brother and I used to write LARPs together. And one of the things we would sort of say when we were writing LARPs was every single team background, every single group background, the players should read it and go, oh my God, we're the coolest people in the game. Like, who could be, and I think when you're doing a campaign setting, for me, if it's like classic fantasy, it's like, look at all these fantastical uh, factions and academies and port cities and places that like, oh, I wanna make a character from every single place in this world, from every single background, from every single thing, how cool it all is, right? Um, you're In that pre-world building, you're just making toys. You're just making toys that people would wanna play with. Um, the way that I, I think of it is like, imagine you're an architect and you build a house and a, a house has three bedrooms, two bathrooms, a backyard, and maybe like a fire, like space for a fire pit, right? Then the, pe then the people move in and they're like, oh, actually the third bedroom is actually going to be like a study and a library. And like the fire, we're not actually gonna use the fire pit, we're actually gonna make this whole thing a pool in the backyard. And then imagine the pe the, pe the people who moved in the house call up the architect and it was like, hey, how do we make this room more like a, more like a library or a study? And then you're like, oh, I can actually help you with that. I can install shelves for you, I can do that. It's just like that. 
And like you won't know what they want to do with the house until they move into the house. Uh, uh, and then you're inviting the architect back in and the, the people who live there and the architect get to do it together. Uh, a beautiful analogy. I think it's exactly correct. I think that the, and then after, like you're saying, once the PCs have moved in, to me, I actually tend to not go anywhere towards the plot until after character creation. Like yeah. from, yeah. like for me, so for me, what it is, is it's like prior to PCs, you're building the house, you're building the beautiful things in it. And all you're thinking is like, have I put enough stuff in here that people will be excited to move into this house? Is there enough stuff basically to inspire people? Because if you just say like, it's a fantasy world, who do you want to be? You leave your PCs being like, huh? I don't, well, I don't know, yeah. right? You you make enough stuff that someone says like, got an idea for a character. Um, and then after that, that's when I start to think about, uh, you know, villains, schemes, forces at work in the world. Like now that I we know who our main characters are, what are the fo what are the forces pursuing them, opposing them, thwarting them, assisting them, inspiring them? Like uh, uh, because even like even though that can feel a little a little wild, by doing that you ensure that you aren't making your PCs peripheral that you are not making like there should be and like we we're saying to go back to the whole hegemony we're talking about with with D, &D one of the one of the many problems that D, D faces is by virtue of creating these preset modules that um can invite any group of people you include a moral in your storytelling which is any group of six strangers can fix the problems of a strange land provided they're violent enough yeah. and <laughs> And here's the problem. I don't have any problem with violence and storytelling. You know, hey, uh, uh, fight the good fight. You know, like, I have no, like I'm not a pacifist, but by building your world around your players, you can assure that they are kind of like at the center of the world and the right people to be the heroes of that world. Right, because Dungeons and Dragons requires they are the heroes and they do the violence, which is fine. If you don't want that, do a different game. But, like, that is the requisite of the game that we're playing here. So I 100% agree with that. I think that's great. It's more like, like, give a summary of the world you want to do and the things you're talking about. And then have your players ask questions about it, and then which will flesh out plot hooks. Then characters. Then make the map. I feel like it's like a three-step process. Like, first values. Then characters. Then map. Yes. Uh, I love that. I really, really love that. Um, uh, uh, this next question comes to us uh, from our friend Queenie. Thanks, Queenie. Hi, Queenie. Um, thank you. Um, oh, sorry, I thought you were doing woo the entire time. Oh, woo! Uh, woo. Um, Queenie asks, how do you reward good role-playing without punishing shyer players or players who have a different style of playing? Oh, get up and hug them and tell them <laughs> love them deeply and look at their eyes and being like, you're, you're, I'm enjoying this so much. Um, <laughs> that you make my life more complete after all the work I've done. Congratulations. We're best friends now. Is that what you said? <laughs> oh my God. Um, 
of I think that the the question that you're asking is shyer players. Shyer play and and people who have different styles than you. I'm gonna put the people who have different styles than you because that's like feels like a real judgment call to you. And like yeah. you should reward them because I'm sure that they're trying if they're if they are trying in fact. Um, shyer players still role play and do things that surprise you. And like I think that if you treat hmm, it's like you can't hold everyone to the same standard, but you should have them all jump and really do their strength. Like if role play means so many different things, it can mean cracking a joke at the right time. It can mean like an extend an extended emotional monologue. It's like, hey, instead of doing a persuasion role, convince me. Like there are so many different ways for you to do that that like reward them. There are so like a good. I think your idea of good is like you're holding yourself to just like they need to be great improvers and fucking smash it. Like I just don't I don't think that that's necessarily it. And I think that maybe you're holding yourself to um, uh, D and D media standards, which is just like that's don't do that from us. Don't do that. So like I, I think that I, I'm I'm quibbling with a different part of your question about I think that like. You reward everyone by give, loving them and telling them that they're great, but like the uh, parameters in which they are great might be a little bit different for everybody else, but everyone, I'm sure everyone is contributing and doing their best and making this a happier place to be. I fully agree. I think there's, you know, that kernel of like, hot take. Here's a hot take. Do it. Get in the comments already. Get in the comments right Yay! now. Yay! Get in the comments. Um. <laughs> I feel like I said the secret word and woke up your cat. Whoa, oh, my cat. Oh, Metallica's been in the show the whole time. It's been oh, incredible. He... Oh, I thought that was just a thing. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to ruin the magic. No, he's... Metallica, you're in the vodcast. Do you know? You're crushing it. He's crushing it right now. He's incredible. That cat is like 21 years old. And he's he's a spry boy. Still, he's very healthy. Oh, big yawn. Oh. Uh, uh, <laughs> um... Hot take, as some as the opposite of a Shire player. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, <laughs> Shire player, uh, we talking Frodo Baggins? Uh, woo! Uh, oh, woo! Let's woo! go! Let's go! <laughs> woo! Woo! Um, uh, Metallica hated it. Um, the... <laughs> <laughs> um, we ruined it. We scared the cat away. We scared the cat away. Oh. Uh, as, as a non-Shire player, uh, here, here's something. I've never incorporated inspiration into into 5th edition D&D into any time I've played it. Um, I understand why it's there. One of the things I, I dislike about it is it's one of the only non-diegetic rules. This is a big conversation about game design I could go into. One of the things I think is a strength of games like Dungeons and Dragons and other crunchier tabletops is the preponderance of rules that are diegetic, meaning the character also knows how many spells they have in their spell book. The, the fighter might not know that it's called Second Wind, but they know that they can dig deep down and get past an injury every so often as long as they've had a rest. They know it deep down. They have, have an understanding that they have that ability, right? And 
Inspiration is non-diegetic. It's not existing in the world. It's a reward from the aristocrats in the box watching the game. It's from us, the audience of the game, going, that move is good. And first of all, I'm always worried as a DM, because if I give inspiration, what does it mean when I don't? Like I give it to this player for a joke, but what about when you make a joke to it and I don't give it to you? And I worry as an improviser because we're trained not to make judgment calls like that. So, and another weird thing is, and I know this is interesting because there are a lot of games that, there are a lot of games that believe that they are more pro storytelling because they incentivize role playing. But there are things as a role player that I find crass about attempting to commercialize my love of role playing. Like, I don't want a token when I do the role playing. I'm doing that because I like it. Don't pay me for doing it. Brandon, I'm going to give you two tokens uh, to cover. <laughs> I really like that answer, but I'm taking one away because I disagree. With you. <laughs> <laughs> and I demonstrate that I disagree with your character. No, I 100% agree with you. I, I I agree with that. That's why I was only joking a little bit when I said, "Tell your players you love them and they're doing a good job." That's the only way to do it. You're, it's about pl persons, like outside of the game. Thank you for doing what you did. That was awesome. I, I'm 5,000% compliments. Write them down put them in a note note and give it to your give it to your friend. That's that's exactly what I mean. Like positive reinforcement amongst friends is the love and friendship that we are there at the table to cultivate in the first place. I think that for me within the question is this idea of like rewarding good role playing. And I think my only point is I've never needed my role playing to be rewarded. Like the player at the table that is more theatrical and is more invested in their character, that's probably the high that they are here chasing already. Like in the same way, you know, it, it would be like, it, I, again, like it would be like if there was someone in my life who every time I ate a delicious slice of pizza, they were like, here's a token as a reward for eating that delicious slice of pizza. It's like, baby, the pizza was the reward. I don't need a pizza token. I don't. I don't need to be rewarded for this. Right. Um, taking another token away for using <laughs> because you're really reminding me that I don't have pizza right here. And I, I, I just need to demonstrate that in the game that we're playing. Don't you listen. You are in Brooklyn right now. You and I both know who of us could get a better slice of pizza in and the next. Look at me and Lugosh are going to Pauly G. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh my God. Day of pulling bullets out of mobsters and helping folks transition. And we're going to get some Moz slices from the Pauly G slice shop. Absolutely. I'm so jealous. Mr. Eric Silver, uh, 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 join the party. People know where to find you. What are your social handles? Where can people go and find your work? Wonderful. You can find me on Twitter at L underscore Silvero, E L underscore S I L V E R O. My name, if I was a Lucha Libre wrestler, you can find <laughs> Join the Party on Twitter at Join the Party Pod and on Instagram at the same handle. And you can find it wherever podcasts are sold. You can find the article. I think, it, if I remember correctly, it's uh, Dungeons and Dragons has an anti Semitism problem on, on Alma, which is like. Jewish Teen Vogue, and I mean that in the best goddamn way possible. I love them so much. And you can follow my games. Uh, I think I put them on itch, and they're, they're on my website, ericsilver.work. But you can also find uh, No Capes, 
through the uh, Join the Party merch store, which is jointhepartypod.com slash merch. Incredible. Once again, thanks to our amazing guest, Eric Silver, and to all of you watching at home, we say thank you, and we will catch you next time on Adventuring Academy. Farewell! Goodbye!